We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Terry Rozier, he'll be the next starting point guard of the Charlotte Hornets. Step back, wide open, and it's good, Terry Rozier! Alright guys, welcome in to another Buzz Beat, your favorite Charlotte Hornets podcast. This episode is brought to you by our partners, Bet Online. Visit betonline.ag and enter code BLUEWIRE to receive your 100% welcome bonus. By supporting them, you're also supporting this podcast. So uh, this podcast is going to be a little bit of a bonus episode this week. You guys will still get your regularly scheduled episode with Brian, with Spencer and myself, and then we also have a guest coming on Wednesday. This one uh, today is going to be shorter but it is an extra piece of content that you guys can listen to while you guys are quarantined inside your house. Uh, this one, I'm going to take you back discussing my Hornets fandom and how early I became a Hornets fan. And then also one of the games that I did watch uh, during my uh, day four, day five of quarantine was the 1993 playoff game between the Charlotte Hornets and the Boston Celtics. And this was the Hornets' first ever playoff series win. I ended up watching Game Four, uh, the clincher. But let's let's take it back. I was born the year Charlotte was awarded the franchise back in 1988. So my parents, obviously living in Charlotte, they always dressed me in Charlotte Hornets gear. Uh, Charlotte Hornets was so huge as it was the first major league sports team uh, in the city of Charlotte. I remember having a teal Muggsy Bogues jersey, a purple Larry Johnson jersey at one point. I remember going to that Coliseum when I was a kid, and that team led the league in attendance for like eight straight seasons. And this is not a, a Coliseum like they are today where the arenas are like 17, 18,000. This was 23,000 people uh, in the Coliseum. And you couple that with the fact that this is an expansion team and, and the people of the city – uh, are just so excited to have a, a pro team in the area. Uh, people came out in numbers, and that was one of the loudest buildings from everything that we've heard. And uh, the excitement there uh, in the early 90s uh, was just was big. I remember, I guess, some of the players early on in the franchise, like Muggsy Bogues, Alonzo Mourning, and Larry Johnson. But I never really 
you know, knew for certain how they played without watching some highlight clips. It wasn't really until like the Mason, Anthony Mason era that I started to rem- remember players and teams a little bit better, you know, around when I was maybe eight years old. So, you know, maybe from the mid nineties onwards, that's kind of when I was a more avid watcher of the NBA and especially the Charlotte Hornets and, uh, you know, anything before the age of seven or six, I, I just can't remember. So I wanted to go and watch some of the earlier games and get a feel of how Muggsy played uh, early in his career. You know, I knew that it, obviously you know, the number one thing that happens when you think of Muggsy Bogues is his height and just how pesky of a defender that he was. And he had to work extra hard uh, for being so small. And uh, he made it in the NBA and had a, a long career for a reason. And I also wanted to kind of take a look at some of the fans and the style that the players had on the court in the early 90s. It was just so much different back then than it is today with some of the shorts that are, you know, really, you know, mid, mid-thigh there. Uh, it was interesting to see the different styles of the players, but also the fans and, and the stadium as well. So I'll take you back. The Hornets' first four seasons, uh, the most wins that they ever had in a single season was 31. Then in 1992 and 93, the team under... Alan Bristow jumped from 31 wins to 44 wins. Uh, and this roster included some players from the expansion team like Muggsy and Del Curry, but also the organization drafted pretty well in that era, having drafted Alonzo Mourning that season in uh, 92, Larry Johnson the year prior, and Kendall Gill two off seasons prior. And these three players were the three leading scorers uh, for this roster. Now, the head... The leader on this team was was clearly Muggsy Bogues, but to be led by a team that was so young heading into the playoffs against these Boston Celtics, you probably would have thought that it was just, you know, we made it to the playoffs for the first time uh, in our franchise history. We're happy to be here, and that was that. But clearly, as we know now, they competed and ended up winning that series 3-1. to one. Let me try to set the stage for this season and this series for the Hornets here. Like I mentioned, they drafted Alonzo Mourning that season, and he, along with Muggsy and LJ and Kendall Gill and Gaddison, who was an ex-guest of this show, and Johnny Newman, really were their most impactful players that season. As I was watching the game on YouTube, I noticed that this this Hornets team was very offense-heavy, and they pushed the pace. And I went back and looked at some of the stats they scored the second most points out of any team in the league uh, that season behind the Phoenix Suns. And that Suns team had Charles Barkley, uh, Dan Marley, uh, Kevin Johnson. I was, I was a big KJ fan back in the day. That team, the Suns team that is, they made it to the NBA Finals that season but lost to MJ and the Bulls. For It's crazy to look at this too. Like Michael Jordan in that Finals averaged 41 points uh, on his way to another championship for the Chicago Bulls. Again, like I said, this team that I watched, just they pushed the pace. Like I, I figured, I figured like in the early '90s that you know they were going to slow it down, and it's not like they were at the pace of the teams that play today. But it was just interesting to see Muggsy as he would get the ball out of the rim, he would just push it. He would take two dribbles and he'd get cross midcourt. Again, they were second in the league in this category as well when it comes to pace. They didn't get a lot of steals or a lot of turnovers on the whole for the season, but when they would, they would push the pace off those turnovers. And early in this game, in game four, we saw that happen a lot. So, again, this Hornets team finished the season fifth in the East. 
Boston finished fourth. So clearly this 4-5 matchup was taking place here. And in the season series, regular season series, Charlotte only won one of the four games against Boston, although they did win their most recent game against Boston. First round series against Boston, it was just a five-game series in the first round back in those days with one game one, game two, and game five, if necessary, would have been Boston while game three and four were in Charlotte. And really outside of game three in Charlotte, where the Hornets won by like 30 points, the other three games were fairly, fairly close. Uh, one of them actually went to double overtime, and actually there was another double overtime game that Charlotte won in the second round against New York. So first game in Boston, Boston wins 112-101. Game two in Boston, double overtime game, 99-98. Hornets win, so now the series is tied. They're going back to Charlotte. Game three, 119-89. Hornets won. Now they're up 2-1. to one. So they, they have an opportunity to clinch at home in game four. And we've seen this in the past where the Hornets have had opportunities to go back home and, and clinch a series, whether that was with the Milwaukee Bucks and, you know, I think the late 90s, early 2000s, or if it was uh, re more recently against the, the Miami Heat where they had game six at home and, and they just couldn't do it. So this was not necessarily a must-win game for the Hornets, but clearly if they had lost game four at home, they were going back to Boston for game five. So as I watched this game on YouTube, you know, it started off with the strong pace, pushing the pace. Muggsy Bogues, like I said, was setting the table, setting the tempo for this team. The Hornets were going to Alonzo Mourning early and often in the post. On the defensive side of the ball, and, and you can check my Twitter for this, I have a highlight thread of this game. Anytime Parrish or McHale touched the ball in the post, they doubled a ton. And what was interesting about this game, something that I did not know, is, is this, this series or this game got very testy in the second quarter. Larry Johnson set a hard screen, uh, earning him a, a technical foul. Uh, Sherman Douglas had a hard foul on Kendall Gill on a fast break opportunity. Uh, that was a flagrant foul. And Charlotte went up close to 20 points in the third quarter. So when I, when I originally saw the score of this game and, and knowing what happened with Alonzo Mourning to end the game, I thought this was like a back-and-forth game. But the Hornets were in control of this game for pretty much all of the three quarters. They were up, I think, like 18, close to 20 points in the third quarter, maybe 16 tops, but it, it was around there, like 16, 18, 20. Then the Celtics started to chip away at the end of the third quarter, and then points were hard to come by in the fourth quarter for the Hornets. Uh, it was just more and more of the Celtics. It felt like, even though this... Coliseum was was buzzing uh, with a lot of fans. It felt like the momentum was slowly shifting for the Celtics, and I, I think they ended the game on a 14-2 run before that that ultimate shot by by Alonzo Mourning. Interesting to note as well, Larry Johnson uh, he scored 20 points in this game, but his 20th point came in the third quarter, and he didn't score after that point in the third quarter. It was a lot of Alonzo Mourning getting points from the free throw line where he was 15 of 18 uh, in this game. So let's go to the end of the game. And like I said, Boston was on like this 14 to two run to end the game. And their lead came off of an isolation play that the Hornets like to run for Larry Johnson where they just place all four Hornets on the baseline and let Larry Johnson go to work. And he was spinning and spinning, and then Douglas comes by on a spin and steals the ball and goes up for a bucket and gets Boston that lead with like 40 seconds left. And then the Hornets come back down 
and I believe that, that they missed a shot. I think Kendall Gill misses a mid-range shot. But what was probably the most important play of this game or plays or possessions was the Hornets forcing a 10-second backcourt violation. It was crucial. So Kendall missed the shot. Hornets were down. They were not fouling. They killed a lot of time in the backcourt playing defense and forced Boston to take a timeout. And then after that timeout, they came back in and they forced that 10-second violation. And that's where we are at this point in the game. Hornets down one with 20 seconds left to play. And I'll go ahead and just play the clip. Dallas is their isolation play. So Larry Johnson was spinning again like he did on the previous play where he got the ball stolen by Douglas and um, had a fadeaway shot and missed it. And it went off a couple of hands, but it ultimately went off of Boston. So... 103-102, here it is. All right, so that's it. Uh, the game was not over. Uh, Steve Martin was so excited that that basket went in, that they went back and checked the time, and they put tenths of a second left on the clock, or, may or maybe a second left on the clock. And actually, Boston got a really, really good look at the rim, uh, and, and it was it was perfectly set up on an inbounds, and cannot remember who was going up for the lob, but he, he had an open look uh, but missed it. But let, let's go ahead and move on to the next portion of this episode as we have a guest that was actually involved in that game. We'll get to him after this break. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner still has hundreds of sports, events, or games to wager on, or let them bring Vegas to you with their online casino in Blackjack, all open 24 hours a day and all online, including their $750,000 poker series. If you're into props and entertainment betting, you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the weather. Visit their website and join today and receive a 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Be sure to use promo code BLUEWIRE. Bet online, your online wagering experts. All right, guys, as promised, we have a very special guest today appearing on the episode. Uh, just to give you guys some background on who is about to come on the show here, uh, he was the first African-American North Carolinian to sign for a big school in basketball. He also played one season in the NBA after being drafted by the Cincinnati Royals. He also played in the Continental Basketball Association uh, with the Wilkes-Barre Barons and actually won a championship with the team in 1973. But where most of you guys know his name, 
uh, is from his announcing days. And he was the color commentator for the Charlotte Hornets from 1988 to 2002, uh, spending both time on the radio and the TV as well. And this also carried over to uh, New Orleans for about another 10 seasons. So it's a very long career here. So we've got Gil McGregor on the phone here. Gil, uh, thanks for joining us. And how is everything going with you? Well, you know what? It's my pleasure. I mean, you brought back, you mentioned the wilkes Bear Barons, man. That, that's really uh, going back. Here. But <laughs> I'm, I'm hanging in there every day, and I'm, I'm uh, very happy to be uh, on, on, on your podcast today. Uh, glad to be here. Glad to be here. Thank you. I know we don't have much time. I'm not going to keep you for long. Uh, so let's just jump right into this. First off, I want to let you know, I'm, I'm an educator myself. I've actually been teaching uh, elementary school for seven years. And I see that after your playing days, you actually went back to Wake and you went academic advisor for athletes. So tell me what got you interested in that and what that experience was like. Well, uh, while, while working for the Hornets, the very first uh, time the NBA came here in all-star capacity, they had a program called Be Cool, Stay in School. And they needed a spokesperson to talk about retention for high school students. Mm-hmm. And I happened to be the person that the league uh, used for that. And motivating and uh, talking to student athletes, talking to all students, the student athletes about getting their education and staying in school and not dropping out and persevering. It kind of gave me a good feeling to be able to do that. And so having an opportunity to be the academic advisor at Wake Forest was kind of an extension of that. And um, having a chance to talk to uh, student athletes about learning a system of what education was about, what it would mean to them, Knowing what sports meant to them was one thing, but showing them what education plus sports could mean to them was a message that I really believed in myself, and I had a chance to uh, give them that message and felt very proud of the work that I did for about five seasons with the with Wake Forest University. Yeah, that's one thing I didn't know about you as I was kind of researching your background. Uh, I did not know that you were an academic advisor for Wake Forest, so that, that's interesting to hear. But let's actually get into your broadcasting days with the Hornets. Very simple question here, but... What was it like broadcasting for an expansion team and all the excitement and the buzz that surrounded the organization in the city of Charlotte? Like, did that feel a little bit different those first several seasons, maybe compared to, to later on? Well, it did feel different, but the whole concept of being an expansion team probably was a little bit foreign to me because it was my first exposure uh-huh. to have an opportunity to work for a professional team. So I didn't have uh, an established franchise to compare with an upstart franchise. It was new for everybody. It was exciting for everybody. And it was just as new and just as exciting for, for Gil McGregor to have a chance to launch a professional broadcasting career with an NBA team. So I was I was on board of uh, the good ship lollipop like everybody else was. <laughs> so I actually I actually was born in 1988, the, the year that the uh, franchise was awarded to Charlotte. So some of those earlier teams, I just, I mean, I know the names, I know the players, and I've seen highlights, but I've never actually sat down and watched a game. And I actually went back and sat down and watched the 92-93 playoff series against the Celtics. And I, I know a lot of these teams for you must bleed together and all, a lot of the players kind of just bleed and, and blend in together because you, you've had such a long, successful career within broadcasting. But I, I do kind of want to talk about the players on that team. But let's first start with you as a Wake Forest guy. Let's start with Muggsy Bogues. I think a lot of people, you know, when they think of Muggsy Bogues, they think of his height. But, you know, he's not a player that's going to rack up a lot of points. But what he did do for that team he got the team into the offense. He dictated the pace of play. He was the leader that was needed on that 92-93 team, especially considering 
you know, the young players that were on the team, like Lonzo Mourning and, and Larry Johnson, you know, what impressed you the most, either about Muggsy Bogues as a player or about as a leader uh, when he played for the Hornets? Well, I think people, because of Muggsy's size, really underestimated Muggsy Bogues. I think what used to really not fascinate me, but what really um, was most impressive about Muggsy is that when he would go up against an opponent, they would see his height and uh, they would just assume they were going to post him up. Well, a lot of the guards that tried to post him up had never, hadn't posted anybody up since they were in high school. So they weren't <laughs> post-up players, right? So, but they, because Muggsy was smaller than them, they thought, well, I'm going to post Muggsy Bogues up. And they didn't take into consideration his strength, his, his low center of gravity, his knowledge of positioning, his knowledge of the game, nor his tenacity and the fact that he wasn't going to let anybody bully him. So a lot of guards came into Charlotte or on the road, tried to post Muggsy up, and it did not work because he just was uh, ahead of the game in terms of who he was and what he could do. He brought that to every night. As far as his leadership was concerned, he was a guy that really coalesced that young talent you talk about. Larry Johnson loved Muggsy. Um, So did Alonzo Mourning love Muggsy. So did anybody who played with Muggsy. They loved Muggsy, and he got the best out of them. And he played hard every single time that he got on the floor, maybe because he didn't have a choice but to play hard. But that playing hard showed some leadership, and it was contagious for everybody who played with him. They knew if they ran the floor, he'd get them the ball. Mm -hmm. They knew if they got open, he'd get them the ball. You see the success of of, of the Curry boys. Well, it came from the success of their father being the same kind of dead-eye shooter, but he was that dead-eye shooter because Muggsy Bogues got him the ball when he was open. So Muggsy was not a caricature, and some people thought that he was because of his size, but he was the character of what an expansion team getting started, not having a lot of respect, came to be respected because Muggsy made people respect the Hornets irrespective of his size, he made people respect who they were going to play against every night when they came to play against them. Yeah, so, I mean, Muggsy Bogues, to me, was like the heart and soul of that team, and he was the constant. I mean, he obviously played longer with the Hornets than Alonzo and Larry Johnson. And mentioning those two players, the Hornets were very fortunate in back-to-back drafts, having drafted both of those players. They were very impactful early in their career. And it's not often that you can say that a playoff team uh, was being led by a rookie and a second-year player, uh, but what, what does it say about both of those players, both Mourning and Larry Johnson, to come in and compete against Boston and win that series, especially considering the Celtics had veterans like Parrish and McHale? To me, that, that just seems unthinkable nowadays that you have a rookie and a second-year player that are leading the team in scoring and going up a team against a team that has a lot of veterans. Well, I, I think one of the things that it does, at least as it relates to this is my opinion and how I look at things, basketball is a very special sport. That is certainly team-focused, but it's team-focused built on individual talent. And can an individual talent mesh himself or herself with the team focus? And you had two great young players, Larry and Alonzo, who believed in themselves and in their individual skills, in their individual gifts, in their individual drive and their talent. And they could mesh that with a young team. And being a young and sexy team, although expansion was what this team was, 
but you had two guys who had ultimate confidence in themselves and they weren't going to back down to anybody. Larry Johnson had been on a pedigree college team mm-hmm. at UNLV. He was the player of the year in this country. So there's no way you could sell him short. Alonzo Mourning was an extension of his coach, John Thompson, and what John Thompson did for a lot of big men that came out of Georgetown. So he wasn't going to back down to anybody. And then that leadership you talked about with Muzzy Bogues, who kept encouraging them to be who they were, it meant that they stepped on the court in that pretty purple and teal every night, and they didn't care about the Boston Green, and they didn't care about the Chiefs. And they didn't care about all those names because everybody who made Boston, that franchise you talk about, they weren't playing against them. They weren't up against the Larry Bird. All those guys, as they say, weren't walking through the door. They played against who the Celtics put on the floor, and they managed to hold their own. And great guys like Kevin McHale saw their last games being played and lost to the Charlotte Hornets. Yeah, it definitely was on the tail end of their careers. And as we know, uh, Chief went on to play with the Hornets afterwards. But how often, if ever, Gil, do you ever go back and watch clips or highlights or the full game of Game 4 in Charlotte of that 93 series win? Well, I I, I haven't had to. It's certainly not as of late because, as you may know, I may not be aware of, I've lost my sight. So, I, uh, I don't have an opportunity to, to, to revel in some of the things that the team did that I had a chance to talk about while they were doing it. But I have had more than one occasion to see the jump shots that Alonzo Morning takes and makes and how everybody's formed him. And I remember Dale Curry jumping on him at the mm-hmm. foul line. And I also remember saying to my broadcast partner, Steve Martin, it's not over. It's not over. <laughs> because there was a few tenths of a second left, and I thought that, that I had done a good job in terms of doing my job, remembering what that rule was going to be and yeah. the only kind of play that the, the Celtics could make with less than a second and things of that nature. But that was such a, um, a great shot because it was a shot that established the franchise. I mean, George Chin did all the legwork and his partners that were involved with him and the selling of the PSLs and the building of the arena and the political uh, and cultural statements made during that period of time. But that jump shot that went in to beat the Celtics was the jump shot that established the franchise. And to have had a chance to be on the sideline to witness that and to be a part of that call is something that will be memorable for me in my lifetime as as, as a broadcaster. Yeah, so I- you made a mention of the fact that the game wasn't over because you hear the initial words from Steve Martin, game is over, game is over. Uh, but it, it, it wasn't. They put like a second back left on the clock and yeah. actually Boston got a good shot. Like they had an open yeah. open look at the basket there. Um, but like I said, I watched that game for the first time in its entirety about a week ago, uh, just being on quarantine here. Yeah, yeah. A couple of things I never realized about that game, like just how fast Muggsy pushed the pace. I never realized that the game got a little testy in the second quarter, where there's some hard fouls on both ends. Never realized that the Hornets had such a big lead because when I looked at the final score, I was like, "Oh, this game must have been close." But <laughs> slowly but surely, Boston started to kind of chip away, and the tail end of that third quarter. Now, if, if you can remember, Gil, this is the last question I have for you. You know, how would you describe the Coliseum in those final moments of that shot? Because it felt like 
this team was going to cruise to a win. And then it felt like Boston was going to come back and force a game five back in Boston. But then it ends up kind of going back to, you know, down the roller coaster, up the roller coaster, as you want to say. And, and now morning hits this game winning shot. So, you know, I know you're invested in the team and, and you're an announcer as well, but you probably sensed like, you know, the ups and downs of that game because Boston got a, you know, a lead probably with like 40 seconds left to go. Uh, so just kind of, you know, if you can remember, describe those final moments there. Well, the, the the thing is, is that we we always were hoping, and we always were dealing with possibility as it relates to being a Hornet fan, and and I was I, I was tasked with the responsibility of calling the game, but couldn't call it as a Hornet fan. You were told to be uh, objective, and and it was difficult because. People look down upon broadcasters that use words like we and Mm -hmm. us. And so when you're getting excited and you're trying to call it, you have to stay within the parameters. So here I am trying to stay within the parameters, hoping that the team would win because I wanted us to go on. It meant that the season went on and my my going to different places to do playoff games or whatever, all that was going to go on. So you're pulling for the team. and But you know that Boston has been there before, and we talked about McHale, and we talked about Paris, and so they had that pedigree. And when that shot goes in, as I said to you earlier, that shot solidified what a franchise on the rise had become, not still trying to become, but had become. It didn't necessarily mean the end of the Boston dynasty, by no means. Uh But it did mean that a young and upstart team led by a guy who will never see a person that small again be successful in this league, led by a five-foot-three-inch guard, come back and beat the Boston Celtics. It was that game and more than that game at the same time. It didn't put the end to the Boston Celtics, And it really didn't mark the beginning of the Hornets, but it certainly was a signature game for both franchises and a signature game for me, Gil McGregor. Yeah, I will say this. I enjoyed Steve Martin and your call of the game. Uh, it was very energetic, kept me glued uh, to the screen, even you know, thirty almost thirty years later since that game. <laughs> me knowing the outcome, I still was glued to my you know my screen watching this game. And one of the more underrated parts of that game, or the underrated plays, was the ten second violation. Like I'm sure you remember that as well. You know, forcing that ten second violation to get that last shot for the Hornets. But thanks again, Gil, uh, for joining us today. Uh, I really do appreciate it. I appreciate it doing it. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it, Richie. All right, guys, that was Gil McGregor. I uh, really do appreciate his time and his insight on the Hornets. Uh, thanks again for tuning in to another Buzz Beat. Stay safe, uh, and we're hoping that this episode keeps you entertained while you guys are on lockdown. For Gil, I'm Richie. We'll see you guys next time. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. 
the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.